0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard podcast. Our guest today is Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson has an MS degree in electrical and electronics engineering, and he's been involved in tech and software for many years. Um, But we're not hosting him today to talk to us about tech and software. We're here to talk about climate. Um, Now, Tom has absolutely no credentials in climate. So if credentials are your thing, now is the time to get uh, agitated and uh, angry and uh, denounce us for hosting somebody who doesn't have the right uh, credentials. To talk about these topics, who hasn't been approved by the Church of Climate um, to discuss things. But if you care about thinking about things, um, you care about ideas rather than credentials. And if you'd rather use your brain than uh, trust people who tell you their authority um, supersedes what your brain says, then you might want to stick around. Uh, Tom has a blog and is pretty active on Twitter. And I've come across his Twitter many years ago. I don't even remember when. Mm -hmm. And it was um, pretty uh, influential for me in understanding the issue of climate change and in understanding how to think about it in a rational, scientific uh, way. Um, Tom's uh, ideas and work on this are just the work of an intelligent outsider who has no um who, who doesn't get paid from this uh topic he has no interest except really discovering the truth and um He's really helped me um, develop my understanding of this topic, and I thought it would be great to host him, to ask him about some of the most important questions related to the topic of climate and climate change, which um, is becoming an increasingly significant topic. Um, and I, I discuss it in detail in my book, In the Fiat Standard. Now, many people tell me all the time, you know, you should stick to economics, stick to Bitcoin. This is your expertise. Why are you talking about climate? You're not a climatologist. You don't have a degree in it. And even though I kind of do have a degree in this stuff, I obviously my degree isn't what matters, but I think it is extremely related to the topic of money and Bitcoin because I think, um, you know, the conclusions of climate science and the uh, conceived, um, notions of, Settled science are in many ways extremely important economically. They have enormous implications. And what uh, is being promoted as you know the way to fix the climate has enormous economic implications. And I would say um, it is enormously important for the understanding the topic of Bitcoin and fiat money because A, uh, the fiat money is what finances this science, and I think it's a great example of uh, how the scientific process gets corrupted with the use of uh, fiat money instead of science being open to competition and having a free market and ideas. We have scientific authorities uh, deciding what is correct and what is acceptable and what is uh, not. And also, I think uh, because of the topic of inflation, and we're going to talk more about this later on today, um, Uh, we see this with nutrition. And then we had a recent uh, discussion with Dr. Kate Shanahan about this. And we see this with climate in both issues. We're talking about two goods that are extremely price sensitive, that are extremely um, susceptible to price rises with uh, inflation. And in both cases, the supposed uh, consensus of scientific experts wants you to stop consuming these goods because they have a lot of uh, consensus on why you should not be eating meat and instead substituting it with cheap uh, industrial crops and why you should not be consuming the fuels that we need to survive the winter and to move around and the fuels that have built our modern world and allow us to have electronics and all kinds of amazing uh, and essential goods, How why we should stay away from these and go back to pre-industrial uh, technology. In both cases, I think... Um, the 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 impact of inflation is felt at the production of the science but also at the conclusions which lead us to move away from um from the things that uh, are pretty price sensitive. So I think climate is totally up your alley. If you're interested in Bitcoin and money and inflation, if those topics interest you, I think you should pay more attention to climate and then just uh, listen to what you know the consensus says. So uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Good to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your background and um, what gives you the audacity to opine on something in which you are not a credentialed expert?
1: Yeah, I am not a climatologist, but I, I have that tech and software Background that you mentioned. And uh, I got into uh, looking at scientific debates back in 2005 with the ivory billed woodpecker rediscovery. There was a peer review paper that came out with uh, 17 authors. And for a while, people believed that they had rediscovered this extinct woodpecker. And I'm a bird watcher and I just took a look at the evidence for myself. And right away, when I looked at the evidence, you could see that they didn't have really any evidence. They had uh, people had heard some sounds. And they had a blurry video, and they had a picture of an ivory bill that was six pixels. It was only six pixels, black and white pixels, and that was supposed to be evidence that they had rediscovered an extinct bird. And that kind of blew my mind. So I heavily got involved in blogging there, and uh, Jack Hitt uh, actually wrote up uh, in his book, A Bunch of Amateurs. He wrote a chapter on uh, how this got debunked by amateurs because the professionals had believed in the, uh, the rediscovery, but uh, I checked into it, and on my blog, a lot of people also looked at the evidence and commented and just kind of ripped apart the evidence. And it's, examples of, uh, it's an example of amateurs that are able to just directly look at the evidence and um, debunk something that's just simply not true. So anyway, um, later in that debate, a meteorologist um, told me there's a lot of uh, parallels between that debate and the global warming debate. So for the last 15 years, I've been looking at the global warming debate, and it's very similar again in that the evidence uh, is just not there at all for the climate crisis. If you look at every single bit of their claims, if you look um, for hurricanes, polar bear populations, uh, crop yields, et cetera, if you actually look at the data, there is no climate crisis. So amateurs uh, are able to look at the data and debunk that one, too.
0: Yeah, so obviously this is a very big claim. Most people think, yeah. you know, 97% of mm-hmm. scientists agree it's a crisis. If mm-hmm. we don't do anything, um, all kinds of vague doom mm-hmm. is going to hit us, you know, the earth is going to boil or the oceans are going to boil and sea level is going to rise. Um, but I think you, in your blog, you've got uh, six what you call six flawed assumptions, which are basically taken for granted by most people. They think of these as just being um, uh, a given. But I'd like to walk through these because I think these are very, very fundamental building blocks of trying to understand what is going on in the issue of climate. And most people take them for granted. And so if you take these for granted because, you know, you think the experts agree and who am I to doubt the experts, then you're going to arrive at the conclusion that indeed uh, we are in – we we are facing a climate catastrophe. So let's begin with the first one. The first one says – the earth is currently too hot. Is the earth too hot?
1: No, it is not too hot. And uh, you can look at uh, human history to see that uh, humans have always done better in warm periods, and they've historically been called optimums. And humans have struggled in cold periods. There's, uh, They've had uh, problems with crop yields and disease and uh, a lot of other problems in uh, cold periods. And during the Little Ice Age, uh, witches were burned because uh, things were crop yields were low and uh, a lot of bad things were going on. And, um, life just wasn't as good in cold periods. So the whole idea that the earth is currently too hot is, uh, is not true. And then if you go back before human history, uh, it was warm enough for crocodiles and palm trees up in the Arctic. Uh, so naturally the earth has been way warmer than it is now. And, uh, life still did just fine. You could argue that life does even better when the earth is warmer and, um, uh, Because as you go towards the equator, you get a lot more diversity than uh, as you go towards the poles. So warmth is good for life, including humans. So the Earth is not too hot. There's nothing that indicates the Earth is too hot.
0: So, what do you think of the uh, historical temperature record that we have? Um, what is uh, what 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 do we actually know about the history of the Earth's temperature? How has it varied over the past hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of years? We see a lot of claims being made. Um, what do you think is the um, evidence?
1: Yeah, I got a couple of graphs I can show you. I don't know if I should show you those now or later, but... Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's uh, share a screen here and take a look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a graph of just the last few thousands of years, how the uh, Earth's temperature has varied. And i like to point out on the left side there, you have the Minoan Warm Period. So, of course, humans were around uh, during this time, and uh, that period was uh, warmer than anything we've seen recently. And we've also had other warm periods uh, after that, including the uh, Roman Warm Period, and the medieval warm period. And then over on the right side, you can see the current warm period. So the whole idea of panicking at this current warm period over on the right just doesn't make any sense because even, uh, you know, just a few thousand years ago, it was warmer. And then also on this graph, I like to point out that uh, around 1600 is where the the witch hunts occurred because uh, those cold times were bad times. And 50,000 witches got burned back then uh, because it's a very old and a very wrong idea that If the weather is bad, it's caused by people you don't like. And uh, that continues to this day that uh, people want to blame bad weather now on Exxon or whatever else. So it's happened for a long time, and it's been wrong every time. The warm periods have been better. Uh, That was for a few thousand years. And here's a longer view going back uh, hundreds of millions of years as to how temperatures have varied. And uh, the black line is actually carbon dioxide, and the blue line here is temperature. Temperature. But the main thing to look at on the blue line is that for most of the last 600 million years, naturally, the Earth was much warmer than it is now. So the idea that, uh, you know, the Earth is mind-blowingly warm or that uh, positive feedbacks are going to cause the Earth to become uninhabitable because it's so warm right now. It's just historically, it's just not that warm right now. And while we're on this graph, I wanted to point out something very important about carbon dioxide while we're here. This black line is the, uh, the carbon dioxide line. They've tried to figure out uh, how much CO2 was in the air in parts per million. And uh, everyone agrees that uh, back here a uh, few hundred million years ago, there were thousands of parts per million of CO2 in the air. And as we get down here to the right, we have uh, just a little over 400 parts per million right now of CO2. So the whole idea that the air is filling up with carbon dioxide, that uh, it's uh, unnatural to have so much carbon dioxide out there is totally untrue. We have, uh, we're closer to having not enough CO2 in the air and we are to having too much CO2. I wanted to mention that while we're here.
0: Yeah. Now, um, let me be a little bit skeptical here. Um, Just how good is the evidence that allows us to extrapolate what temperatures were like Hundreds, thousands, and millions of years ago, because I see that there seems to be consensus, I think, even among the skeptics. Like, if you showed some of these charts to the skeptics and the, what I like to call the hysterics, the people who think the sky is falling and the oceans are boiling, they tend to agree. You know, it's actually quite remarkable that there isn't much disagreement about what temperatures were like a hundred million years ago. Which I find a little bit odd because, you know, we don't have uh, reliable records from 100 million years ago or, you know, even 400 years ago um, to, to be able to tell with any kind of certainty about what the temperature was like and what the atmospheric CO2 was like. So what do you think of the quality of the evidence for these kind of very long-term graphs?
1: I completely agree that the best you can do when you're going back in time, not very far in time, is uh, it's more of a guess than it is uh, precision. Because NASA says they don't even know the global average temperature right now. It's maybe uh, you might be off by a couple of degrees Fahrenheit. So with all our modern technology, we don't really know what the global average temperature is. So if you're asking us what was the temperature on average on Earth of five hundred million years ago today, uh, it's more of a guess than anything else, but they can use fossils and figure out if they can if they can find a uh, uh, tropical fossils way up by the poles, et etc. And uh, like under the Antarctic ice, there's uh, evidence of life under there. So it must have been way warmer a long time ago there. But uh, I agree with you. If you're trying to uh, specify exactly either how much CO2 was out there or exactly what the temperature was, I don't think anybody knows. Especially, uh, I wanted to mention with uh, trying to figure out carbon dioxide, some people think that at the poles, if you just uh, take an ice core and you get uh, ice that you think is 800,000 years old and uh, find an air bubble in there and... uh, you're supposed to be able to tell how much CO2 was in the air globally using that ice bubble. I uh, I don't have faith that you're getting the correct answer there either. So I think a lot of this old stuff is guesses.
0: Yeah. And I think um, if, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the estimates from some temperature are obtained from estimating CO2 concentrations and then assuming temperatures must follow some kind of relationship with CO2, right?
1: There is, a yeah, there is a lot of uh, assuming that CO2 is the climate control knob. So it must have been warmer when CO2 was higher, but... Uh, That is not the case. I have a different slide. I think I can step back to it of Greenland right here. This is a really good one from Greenland. Uh, Up here, uh, the blue line at the top is uh, temperatures in Greenland. The red line at the bottom is uh, CO2, uh, global CO2. And um, you can see that throughout for thousands of years, the carbon dioxide is going up while the temperature is more, is going down. So this whole idea that CO2 is the climate control knob, there's all sorts of exceptions. Sometimes it's going up when, when the temperature is going up, but a lot of times it's not. So there's all sorts of other things that are happening. And just assuming that uh, if you know the CO2, you know the temperature is just no way you don't.
0: Yeah, but so to to get back to the temperature, uh, the historical temperature. So, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to be skeptical about this data. I think uh, I agree with you on that. But we do know for a fact that fossils exist in the Arctic. We've seen fossils in the Arctic, and you don't see a lot of living creatures today. So it's pretty clear that things were much warmer at a certain point in time back then. And we also have historical records from a few hundred years ago uh, where, you know, Things like it, the the Thames River in London used to freeze. Uh, so this this is well documented. People have written about it. It used to happen every winter that the Thames would freeze. Now it never happens. And no matter how cold it gets in London, we haven't had the Thames freeze in, what is it, in 200 years or 300 years or so? Something
1: like that. I really enjoy yeah. the type of evidence also where uh- – they find tree stumps that are only maybe a few thousand years old that are North of the current tree line up in the Arctic. I I like that type of evidence because there you're not modeling or making any assumptions. You're actually physically looking at a tree stump and it must have been warm up there, warmer up there for that to happen. And then also uh, those uh, historical records from Greenland farming in Greenland. And I have heard that there are some areas that are melting out now and you can still smell uh, a sheep smell from the uh, sheep farms that used to be there. And then they were covered with ice and uh, now it's warming up enough to to uh, unearth some of that stuff,
0: the syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeideen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Okay. So what you'd say is, you know, if you look at this chart, and and by the way, we're going to have all of these charts uh, available. If you're listening to the podcast and you can't uh, tell what we're talking about, we're going to have all of these charts available on the show notes on com slash podcast. And, um, uh, under this episode, you'll find all of these uh, charts so you can, um, take your browser there right now and follow along as we discuss these, uh, uh, these graphs and, um, so so, so you, it, it, we we are warming. I think you agree that the earth is warming. The earth today is a lot warmer than what it was a couple of hundred years ago, right? A few hundred years ago. Well, maybe not a lot, but it is yeah, yep. warmer than what it was a few hundred years ago. Yep. We know that, right?
1: And it, it depends on which starting point you use. It's clearly warmer than it was in 1850 right now, and it's warmer than it was in 1975 right now. But uh, if you go back far enough, uh, of course, uh, for hundreds of millions of years, it's cooled since then. Um, So you can pick various points, and it's both warmer than some of those points and colder than some of them. But lately, it uh, has been uh, warming. But uh, even in the last five years, it's unclear whether possibly we might be starting a short-term cooling trend again. Nobody nobody knows what's going to happen next, but possibly we are starting to cool
0: it's It's important to remember that nobody knows what's going to happen with the weather more than five days away from now um you know your your weather forecast will tell you everything after five days is basically guesswork um so <laughs> to be able to you know confidently make assertions about what's going to happen in fifty and one hundred years from now I think is um It's one of those things that, you know, you have to either be uh, getting paid to do those things or to have a lot of trust in the people that uh, get paid to do those things and to imagine that these people are somehow infallible to be able to make these estimates. But if you actually look into the methodology for it, and I've uh, looked at that uh, to some extent, it's it's modeling at the end of the day. And these people are just looking at models and trying to predict the future from the models. And, you know, that doesn't have much of a better track record than uh, crystal balls as um, as far as, you know, actual track record and not just... Um, going by credentials and titles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A point I would like to make is that not only do we not know what these graphs are going like, to look like in the future, we don't know what caused the graphs to look like this in the past. There's all sorts of fluctuations there and we can make guesses as to exactly what caused them, but the Earth's climate is so complicated that I, nobody understands it. We can have some general idea, but it's, there's a lot of surprises out there. So uh, yeah. the whole idea of trying to model Earth's climate, it's uh, not something we can do successfully right now.
0: Yes, we're going to get to that in point in point number four, but uh, yeah, let's let's get to the second point, which is we are experiencing a climate crisis. Why aren't we experiencing a climate crisis, you heretic?
1: We are not experiencing. Uh, there's no uh, evidence at all that there's anything wrong with the weather. That hasn't been wrong with it uh, every other year in human history. Uh, yeah, hurricanes are not getting worse. Fires are not getting worse. Uh, we're getting better reporting. We might be finding out about more fires now. If you live in a certain city in the old days uh, and a fire happened halfway around the world, you would never know about it. So now we, you, you can uh, get a lot of reporting. And if you listen to all the fire news every day, you might think the world's on fire, but it's not. And if you look at uh, graphs in a particular location of over 100 years, how bad are the fires now versus back then? Um, there's no crisis there. And I've been down every one of these rabbit holes uh, for 15 years. I've carefully looked at the real data uh, versus the claims, and there, there's nothing alarming going on at all right now. Uh, a big uh, problem is people don't realize how bad the weather was in the past, and uh, they just figure if something bad happened today, that must it must be unprecedented. But none of it is.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think mm-hmm. the confidence with which people who are 20 years old or 30 years old will tell you that, you know, we've never seen anything like this it always amuses me. I mean, you know, you've only been around for 30 years. You remember 20 of these years, maybe if you're lucky. And the idea that, you know, um, the last 19 years should have experienced should have shown you all of the possible variation in climate outcomes that would have ever existed so that you know something new happening in your 20th year is somehow um conclusive proof that the earth is witnessing something uh cataclysmic i think it's just uh it's is is funny really once you once you step back from the kind of uh, you know groupthink around this and you think about it i mean you know though the the world has been very, very different. As we said, there used to be trees above the tree line, you know and and um, the tree line is the northernmost point on earth where trees grow beyond that point it's too cold for trees to grow but historically trees grew there and um, we've had all kinds of different things that we know about as a matter of fact from the historical record of people writing it down and uh, all kind of other pretty solid evidence so this notion that anything happening today is um is, is extraordinary or a crisis in any sense, I think is, is, is absurd. And I think you're absolutely correct on the issue of reporting. You know, uh, 300 years ago, nobody lived in Florida or very few people kept records about what was going on in Florida. And so when a hurricane hit Florida, it was just a bunch of rain on an empty swamp and uh, you know, a bunch of crocodiles might've been bothered by it, but they didn't keep track record and they <laughs> didn't write uh, emotional diatribes about how <laughs> this is the fault of uh, people burning firewood or whatever. But now we've got tens of millions of people living in Florida and so when a hurricane hits, and, and of course, the reason we have tens of millions of people living in Florida is because of all the technological advancement that we have. And so, um, Florida has become habitable. We, we, we found ways of getting rid of the crocodiles, we found ways of putting air conditioning there. And so now when, it, when you get a hurricane in Florida, it's a big deal. It destroys the lives of people. And yes, it's a terrible thing, but the notion that it is some kind of crisis that has never happened before, I think is just, uh, is outlandish. What would you say are the best, what is the kind of strongest evidence that um, people who believe in a crisis would present? Like what, what are the kind of things that they tell you to try and prove to you that it is indeed a crisis?
1: Well, I, I see that all the time on Twitter and uh, in, the, in the news is that uh, like flooding, there's flooding in Australia lately, uh, heavy, heavy rains, and they're saying, of course, because the air is warmer, it holds uh, 7% more moisture, and that's why it's raining so much. But these are the same people that two years ago when everything was, or when they were having big fires down there and droughts, they were saying that carbon dioxide is a reason that it didn't rain enough. So just uh, constantly there's uh, contradictory claims like that. But I'd I say the biggest thing that I see is just something just something bad happened and carbon dioxide must have caused it. Heat waves, et cetera. Uh, yeah, they haven't dug very deeply or, or thought very deeply about the claims. And yeah, the, the floods and droughts are in the same area blamed on uh, carbon dioxide. I, I, I don't understand why uh, we should buy into that one, but that's a common this one. Is the, yeah.
0: the, the, this is one of my favorite things about following your Twitter account, which is, I mean, most People just don't think about those things these this way, but you just put it out there in a way that really makes you think. Um, you know, I I'm old enough to remember when it was droughts that were going to be the you know obviously the science is settled. More CO two is going to lead to magical things happening in the atmosphere, and then we get droughts, and then we get floods, and <laughs> you know rain uh, floods happen because there's a lot of rain. So it's the exact opposite, but there's very little difficulty in um noticing the contradiction here you know either co2 is going to cause the rain to stop falling or and we get a lot of droughts or it's going to cause the rain to increase it can't really do both um y- you have to really engage in a lot of very very elaborate mental gymnastics to convince yourself that whether it uh, w- whether it rains a lot or it rains too little the answer is because of co2 and it's just this is where it turns into really uh, witch doctor territory. It's 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 unfalsifiable. There's you know the weather's always going to change. There will always be a place in the world that is getting um that, that is recording a record in rain. You know we record there are tens of thousands of cities around the world. There are hundreds of thousands of um, stations where people are recording rainfall levels and uh, temperature. And every year, you're bound to get records in uh, some of these. It's just inevitable. You're going to have to have, you know, records are set at some point. And so every year, records are going to be set. You're going to get most rainfall, least rainfall, highest temperature, lowest temperature, and as long as these records get set, then, um, you know, this kind of pseudoscience will take them as evidence. You know, there we go. You just find one of these many cities anywhere in the world, you know, it could be in China, Australia, um, Bolivia, whatever it is, you know, they had more, more rain this year than they ever have. And so that settles it. Or, you know, they had less rain this year than they ever had. Both of these things are enough to convince the believers that <laughs> this is a crisis.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do like to point out uh, record cold just for fun on Twitter. I mean, you've probably seen that quite a few times. Uh, I do point that out in, all the time. Then people who, whenever there's a heat wave, they say this must prove that the earth is too hot. And I say that we have uh, a cold wave. And then they'll say, that's just weather. Of course, that doesn't mean anything. And it's back and forth all the time. I, I, I kind of enjoy it, but it's uh, not convincing. Anyway, no, no crisis. Yeah.
0: Yeah, actually, that's uh, let's take a little bit of a detour to talk about the um, climate versus weather dichotomy. So basically, when it's 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 hot and it it's, it it's it it goes along with global warming, then that's the climate. But when it's cold, it's just the weather, right?
1: Yep, I've heard that so many times. Yep.
0: So what what is the difference between climate and weather? Could you explain the difference between the two? Well,
1: uh, standard definition seems to be that it's climate uh, over a thirty-year period. Then it's climate. You know, over uh, shorter periods, then it's weather. That's the most common uh, definition I've heard. Um, I was going to mention that when you're talking earlier that I'm old enough to remember the nineteen seventies um, global cooling scare. That. There really was a a scare in the media. I don't know what the scientists necessarily were saying, but for sure in the media, there was a lot of talk about how uh, Earth was cooling, because it was, and it was uh, very cold, and uh, they were extending that off into uh, the future, uh, an Ice Age was coming. That turned out to be wrong. But it was cold enough in the 70s so that in Ohio, there were people that were snowmobiling and uh, right past the um, chimneys of houses. It got... uh, it, it did really, really uh, get much colder in the 70s. and uh, But then it turned around and no one knows exactly why. But it was not humans that caused the cooling or the warming. It was something else. Yeah,
0: I, I think I, I definitely agree with you on that. All right. So the third one, the third flawed assumption is that the weather is getting worse. Why do you think the weather's not getting worse?
1: Yeah, you can look at... Uh, I like to take each one of those uh, one at a time, like hurricanes. You can look at all the records we have of hurricanes and uh, the accumulated energy of hurricanes, et cetera, and they're just not getting worse. The, uh, a lot of uh, major hurricanes hit the U.S. in the 1950s for some reason, and again, no one knows why, but the hurricanes we've had since then, uh, we, ha- we haven't had a spate of hurricanes like we did in the 50s recently. So the hurricanes are not getting worse. I have a slide here someplace of uh, the deadliest storms in human history, I like this one a lot. The 35 deadliest tropical cyclones. So you can see there's, if you look at the death column on the right, there was horrible cyclones that killed hundreds of thousands of people. But if you look at the years that they happened, like 1970 is one of the most recent ones. 1737, you had a really bad one in 1584. You go down here to 1281, there was a terrible one. And of course a lot less people were alive back in 1281. And there's a lot of them that happened in the 1800s. So, um, the whole idea that uh, if a storm kills uh, ten people now, a lot of uh, people try to say, "Look, uh, there's there's a climate crisis because we had a storm that killed ten people," and it, it is an absolute tragedy. But the storms in the past were just so terrible, also, and there, there's no signal in the the storms that would indicate that uh, that uh, a hotter it is. A warmer climate does that cause bigger storms? Not necessarily. Some people argue that uh, as the Earth warms and there's less of a difference between the poles and the equator, that possibly storms might get to be less intense, and they might get more intense if we have got global cooling. And That's a theory, and I don't know which one is right. I, I, uh, I think if, I think it's possible that if we were to get uh, one degree centigrade of cooling from here, we might see some signal in storms getting slightly worse. But uh, certainly, they're not getting worse. If you look at the actual data, um, they are not getting worse, and that—that's true of so many other things. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think you know the the key point which um, Alex Epstein always uh, makes. Uh, is what he calls climate mastery. I think this is something that is ignored. Um, And and Alex Epstein really makes a very compelling case for the input. And we've had Alex on this show a couple of times before. Alex makes a very compelling case for why, you know, even putting aside all of the um, uh, scientific evidence about what is actually happening happening with the climate, the case for um, using fossil fuels uh, is enormously compelling. Uh, regardless of what you think of the evidence because the reason that uh, storms and cyclones don't kill as many people as they would have killed before is because of all of the incredible and amazing and previously unthinkable technologies that we use to build our modern world and our infrastructure and that is largely thanks to fossil fuels and i think you know the um, the biggest blind spot that uh, climate fanatics climate change fanatics have is that they ignore just um, they think it's (laughs) the metaphor that I like to use is they think changing the energy sources that humanity uses is a design choice like changing the color of your iPhone you know it's just it's like if we could only stop using black iPhone cases and all switch to white iPhone cases we could fix the weather and it's it's i think a testament to just the level of naivety and ignorance particularly among the very educated because it's usually university graduates and um even you know phd's who have this enormously enormously simplistic view of the world wherein you know if we would just uh switch off the supply of gas coal and oil and substitute it with wind solar and angel farts or something then we could just stop the weather from going bad and of course this misses the point that you know if if you've got any kind of engineering background you're an engineer and I studied as an engineer and I think uh, you know I'm not an engineer but I'd like to um ride the coattails of engineers and call myself one because I appreciate engineers a lot and I like the engineering way of thinking you can't just have the nice things that fossil fuels make possible Without fossil fuels, we can't have steel-reinforced houses without producing steel, and we can't just produce s- steel with seventh-century technology that is windmill. You know, we we I mean we could, but we can't. Um, we can't make anywhere near as good the steel that we have uh, with that technology. You look at how steel is produced; it involves enormous quantities of coal. So you may not like coal, you may not appreciate that it is, you know, it produces smog. Um, but you know, you don't have to live in the coal plant. Uh, you can move away from a coal plant if it's right next to you. But you do like—I promise you—that you do like the products that coal makes possible. Your iPhone wouldn't be possible without the coal. Your laptop, um, semiconductors—all of these things that uh, you take for granted today—cannot be made. With solar technology, solar panels themselves cannot be made with solar technology. Wind turbines cannot be made with uh, wind turbine technology or with sun rays. You need high power energy sources that produce an enormous amount of power and direct it towards solving, uh, t- toward you know forging that uh, iron. And so, having those fuels allows us to have those houses that can survive a lot of these things that would have killed your ancestors uh, 500 or 5,000 years ago. And so um, whether the weather is actually getting bad or not, whether we are in a climate crisis is one thing. Even if that were true, you would want to use more and more uh, fossil fuels because that's our only hope of protecting ourselves from worse weather. If it's going to mean more cyclones, if it's going to mean more flooding, more snow, you're gonna need sophisticated machinery, you're gonna need um, heavy infrastructure, you're gonna need modern sewage systems and modern water drainage system. And that can't be done without these um, energy sources that these people like to vilify so much, um, usually using those energy sources. And you know, my, my, my constant um, response to all of those people is I'll consider your opinion when you're able to tweet it to me. <laughs> Without using any fossil fuel products, until you can switch away from it, and then of course you see that the, the 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 completely delusional mentality when they respond saying, "Well, we need government to pass laws that um, you know allow me to tweet." <laughs> without using fossil fuel technology you know if they would only just pass a law then all those greedy capitalists would you know build their computers out of solar wind and um angel farts and then i could tweet at you but it's not my fault that's why that's mm-hmm. why we need yes. climate action
1: <laughs> i do like uh, alex epstein's quote about how uh, fossil fuels haven't taken a safe climate and made it dangerous but they've taken a dangerous climate and made it safe. I think that's an excellent quote because that's that's what's happening here.
0: Exactly. And I think there's a chart in my book, uh the Fiat standard, um, um we'll put it in the show notes. I don't have it right now. That shows the number of people that have been dying um because of uh because of climate uh, related uh disasters and catastrophes around the world and um, also shows you the concentration of CO2. As CO2 is rising, oh yeah, you've got the same chart. I don't have the CO2,
1: but I just have, uh, the blue line shows how the climate-related deaths are plummeting, yeah.
0: Exactly, so over the last 100 years, We've seen an enormous, enormous uh, number of uh, an an enormous decline in the number of people dying from climate-related deaths. 100 years ago, people a lot more people died from floods, droughts, storms, wildfire, and extreme temperatures. A lot less people die today because we have infrastructure. We have houses that withstand flooding. We have houses that uh, we have infrastructure that allows us to bring water into the middle of the desert in the middle of the drought. You know. Um, people in people live in places today that were uninhabitable hundreds of years ago and you know you have major modern cities in the middle of the desert uh, millions of people living there and even in the middle of the drought they managed to get water there and that's because of technological advancement it's uh, it, it's how we protect ourselves from the climate and ironically and funnily enough and coincidentally enough this is what people think we need to get rid of in order to fix the weather. You know, They want to take away your ability to um, handle weather under some kind of uh, insane quest to appease the gods of the weather <laughs> to then make the weather become better.
1: I think a lot of people with the propaganda they've heard, they think this blue line goes the other way. They think that uh, way more people are dying now than were dying 100 years ago. But um, again, it's just a matter of looking at the data and then uh, it all falls away. The whole thing is a house of cards.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's a house of cards and it also relies on a lot of emotional manipulation. And I think most of my listeners and most intelligent people have now come around to this conclusion that, um, you know, the uh, when it comes to, say, the, the, the corona crisis over the last couple of years, that, yes, a lot of this was just emotional and a lot of the evidence didn't require all this insane reaction that happened. And uh, I think people need to start seeing the uh, reality that uh, this is something that... Um, the supposed official science has done before, you know, they, we've burned witches before. And we locked up five year old kids and muzzled them for a virus that doesn't threaten them, and ruin their development and destroy the lives of millions of poor people. And I think we're seeing something similar with this uh, cl- climate hysteria all over the world. I think it's, uh, it's, it, it it's, high time that people start considering the fact that uh, the cure uh, is far worse than the disease um, you know in the, in, the, in the case of the coronavirus I think there was a, clearly there was a disease and it was a bad disease for many people but I think the cure was arguably far worse uh, the, the interventions that were done were far worse in the case of climate I think it's 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 arguable that there really isn't a disease that we can't control the weather there's just you know, the, the planet is far too big for us to be able to uh, think that we can determine what's going to happen with the weather. Which brings us nicely to point number four. And this is my favorite. And this is, I think, the first time I came across Tom's profile on Twitter. This was his uh, profile description, and it remains the uh, byline of his uh, blog. CO2 is not the climate control knob. This is I mean, just simply hearing that sentence is just a massive uh, slap in the face. I'm like, yes, why would you think that CO2 is the climate control knob? I mean, the Earth is an enormous, enormous place. The earth is a, is, is a massive ball whose diameter is twelve thousand and seven hundred kilometers. That's a lot of kilometers. It's a huge thing. I, don't, you know, you're only one uh, one over five hundred of a kilometer. So that's twelve thousand times five hundred of you, roughly. Um, so you're extremely inconsequential as a human being, and even seven billion of us are extremely inconsequential in this, in, in the grand scheme of things. The Earth is enormous, and it's surrounded uh, and, and it's spinning around a giant ball of fire in the middle of the sky and the notion that we could just set the temperature of this earth with co2 is absolutely amazing and why would anybody even believe that why would you think that this is the most important factor determining a temperature so tell us more why is co2 not the climate control knob
1: yeah, this graph here that I showed before, it's uh, from a guy named uh, Bob Carter, the late Bob Carter. And I think it nicely lays out the, the fact that I mentioned before that uh, for long periods of time, the uh, temperature of the earth and CO2 can go in opposite directions. But I think it's mind-blowing that you have some local city councils that they take it on that they're going to do tackle the earth's climate. They're going to tackle the climate crisis. What they're trying to do is somehow change this red line, and that's supposed to change the blue line. And re- they're hoping that they're gonna make a, an impact on uh, global average temperature in 2050. But what I think is uh, everybody's efforts put together and all the money that's spent, et cetera, uh, I'm highly doubtful that there'll be any measurable impact on the weather or climate in 2050, everything put together. You can spend trillions of dollars or uh, go all nuclear even, and I don't think there's gonna be a measurable difference in 2050. Um, so because it's not the control knob, as you mentioned, there's all these other factors. I think solar factors are very are, are bigger and uh, there's uh, ocean currents and all sorts of things are going on, volcanoes. And uh, the whole idea that it's the control knob is uh, there's no evidence for it. And we have a lot of evidence now of uh, CO2 levels and temperatures and you you can't see where the, as the CO2 levels change, the temperature uh, change as a result.
0: Yeah. I think this is uh, th- th- this is. I-, I think the sun is the uh, major one, and there are there are a bunch of uh, scientists who have written extensively about how it is the sun that is the main driver. What do you think of that?
1: Uh, I agree. I think it's tremendously complicated. There's a uh, brilliant guy from Israel, uh, Nur Shaviv, I believe his name is. Um, he has uh, some some theories on how um, changes in the sun change cloudiness on Earth, and um, I think that, from my perspective, is uh, one of the theories that's most likely to prove correct in the future, that changes in the sun, uh, changes Earth's cloudiness, and that is a huge factor. Uh, that really uh, makes a big difference as to how warm it is on Earth. But uh, people who do the climate models, they admit that uh, we don't understand clouds and exactly how they're formed. And it's, if we were to actually try to model Earth's climate, we would have to know uh, how the clouds are changing, and we just don't yet. But I think the solar impacts on clouds are a big, big deal.
0: Yeah and I mean you just need to stand in the sun and then watch a cloud come between you and the sun and you immediately feel much colder like you'll you'll quickly see notice a several degree difference in temperature so now just imagine how significant that is on a planetary level, where cloud cover is just enormous, we have enormous amounts of clouds covering the earth all over um and the sun hits those clouds and um you know it if there's a lot of cloud, the earth is going to get cooler if there's not a lot of cloud, the earth isn't going to the earth is going to get hotter, and it's just i mean if you if you snap out of the um programming that wants you to think the c o two I mean just think about it c o two is just so tiny as a, a, as a percentage of the atmosphere. So, and, and this is something that people don't uh, get. Like uh, I don't have, uh, p- people think CO2 is increasing and rising to these enormously dangerous levels. But the reality is we're currently at 420 parts per million. That's the concentration of CO2. So every 1 million molecules in the atmosphere, 420 of them are CO2 so you look around you know the clouds are so enormous the sun is enormous all kinds of other things going on the wind and the wind patterns and the currents it, it it it's it's absolutely astounding that you would think that 420 parts per million co2 and and really all we're talking about all of that has happened since the beginning of the industrialization is that we've gone from 280 parts per million to 420 which is really a very very tiny uh, you know we've gone from very tiny to very tiny concentration and the idea that this is going to um, affect the temperature of the earth more than the sun and the clouds and wind currents is just very 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 difficult to um very very difficult to, to believe logically wouldn't you agree? I,
1: I absolutely would agree. And one fact I do like to bring up that as you and I are talking here, we're exhaling about 40,000 PPM of CO2. So it's a factor of 100 there. And the uh, around in my room right here now, there might be 3,000 PPM. Um, and uh, so it varies a lot. And I did want to mention, though, that um, even though the CO2 is not the control knob, it is really good plant food. And uh, when uh, people want to increase the, uh, the rate of the which the plants grow in the greenhouse, they might put 1500 parts per million of CO2 in, into the greenhouse. So I, I think it, CO2's effect on earth, uh, the greening of plants and the uh, increasing of crop yields is actually, that, that's an actual uh, factor that you can measure. And uh, if you're tweaking it just to try to change the temperature, you're probably not going to be able to measure that.
0: Yeah, and you, you did have a picture about that a slide you wanted to show us about the uh, growing of uh, crops.
1: Yeah, so here is an experiment done uh, growing trees at different levels of carbon dioxide. The left side, the tree is short, uh, growing at uh, 350 ppm. And as you add more uh, parts per million and uh, grow the same tree, it gets much bigger. So even at 800 parts per million on the right, the tree is way bigger. And of course, that applies for uh, corn and wheat and all sorts of our food crops. And uh, crop yields are way up, of course, over the last 100 years. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But the additional CO2 is actually part of the reason why the uh, crops are doing better. And the increased growing seasons are better too. Yeah,
0: yeah. I know. I know NASA, and there on their website, they have an article in which they uh, talk about how um, CO two is helping uh, uh, greening. But how strong is that evidence? How do we know that it is actually CO two that is helping? Couldn't it just be the fact that um, because we're modernizing industrialization, um, it's allowing us to concentrate in cities and then to spread out uh, a lot of the farm area and a lot of the rural land is being converted into forested land as a result of urbanization. Do you think that might be, um, that might be the driver or how convinced are you that CO2 is actually helping? Because it's, um, you know, wouldn't you be skeptical of that claim too?
1: Yeah, I would be skeptical of how much it's helping if they tried to say it's 75%. But it is a positive factor. I'm confident of that. Just because, uh, like I said, if you're growing plants in a greenhouse, you add additional CO2. And uh, somewhere here, uh, I might have a slide and I might not, about uh, corn in a growing uh, cornfield. It sucks up all the available carbon dioxide uh, nearby. So if it in the morning, if there's 420 ppm out there in the cornfield, it might be down to 200 ppm because... on a a day when the corn is growing, it's it's sucking up carbon dioxide like crazy. It's a very big factor in uh, how fast the corn's growing. And um, I think Patrick Moore argues that uh, Earth's CO2 uh, without humans was continuing to go from thousands of ppm, and as plants were sucking it up and it wasn't getting returned to the atmosphere, there was getting to be less and less of it. And he argues that maybe the presence of humans has actually been a big deal in that we're uh, burning some fossil, we're burning fossil fuels and returning carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and getting that number up uh, to a higher level where, uh, where plants are doing better. I think if it gets down to 180 or so, a lot of plants really struggle. So it could be argued that uh, us putting that CO2 back there is, is uh, really helping. So.
0: Yeah, um, we've had uh, Patrick Moore here and he he did make that case and I think it's uh it's it's a pretty compelling case. I think um you know as you said if CO2 drops too low we we're in trouble. We're going to have a lot of trouble growing crops. So uh it does seem like it is a good thing that the concentration of CO2 increases, but um, I think the other thing that is interesting, and this is where I um, I think, you know, recent evidence has just been absolutely um, fascinating about this, when, how do we really know that it is our action that is increasing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere? Um, so yes, we are emitting a lot of CO2 because we're digging up a lot of hydrocarbon fuels from under the earth, and we're burning them and we're releasing them into the atmosphere. And it also happens to be that the uh, atmospheric concentration of CO2 is increasing. So the correlation is there, but um, how do we know that this is actually causal? Because um, I, it could well be the case that we our actions don't really determine the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. And also, um, it could be the case that these are just natural cycles that take place around uh, the Earth and, you know, uh, th- th- maybe it is changes in the temperature, maybe it is uh, changes in the solar activity, um, maybe it is something about the Earth's trajectory or whatever that is causing these kind of changes in CO2 concentration, regardless of what we're doing. So that, uh, yes, we're emitting a lot of CO2, but the concentration of CO2 is going to find its way um, into settling into a certain uh, range, regardless of what we do, because... The Earth is extremely complex. The Earth's atmosphere and the biosphere is extremely complex. So, um, you know, the plants can absorb more CO2 or they can absorb less CO2. Um, It can get absorbed or it can escape the atmosphere perhaps. All kinds of different things can happen um, wherein our contribution ends up being completely insignificant. And the reason I think this is something worth considering even though I don't find many people making making this claim um, we saw this two years ago when the global lockdowns happened. We had basically a shutdown of global aviation, which is an enormous contributor to CO2 emissions. And we had a shutdown of uh, car, uh, automobile uh, uh, emissions. So not total, obviously. You know, Some airplanes, uh, cargo planes, and a lot of cars still moved around. But there was an enormously significant reduction in the amount of CO2 emissions taking place as everybody was locked at home. And yet you look at atmospheric concentrations and you don't notice any kind of effect. So there's a chart on the, which I also include in the FIAT standard, um, where it shows that we don't really see any kind of effect. And you would imagine this kind of significant reduction in emissions would have an effect on atmospheric concentration. You know, you'd notice a little bit of a break in the trend of rising CO2 concentration, but we don't. So what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that is a great point that you bring up. And I actually do have uh, some of the same questions that you have about that. So not only is CO2 is not the climate control knob and humans might not be the CO2 control knob either. And there I have seen some studies where uh, people did direct air measurements of carbon dioxide a long time ago, like maybe 1900 or before that. And a lot of these measurements that they uh, they produced back then were surprisingly high. They're there's supposed to be stable at 280 for a long time, and it was supposed to evenly go up to 420. But there's a lot of measurements back there that didn't fit that curve at all. And either those are measurements are all wrong, or CO2 is doing something different than we think it's doing. So I think you make a very good point, and uh, we can't run the experiments again, run the last hundred years without any humans on Earth, and see what CO2 does. But um, I would be not surprised if humans weren't here. If uh, CO2, I don't think it would have just stayed exactly stable. I think it would have. Uh, possibly gone up without humans here. Um, there is a guy named Tom Segalsted, I believe, who talks about how uh, a lot of CO2 that's in the air ends up uh, forming into, I believe, calcium carbonate, calcium carbonate in the ocean and just falling to the bottom of the ocean. So there may be uh, other sinks that we're not really aware of. Uh, there, there's so many things happening with CO2 that's not just a matter of if humans emit more, then uh, it's going to stay in the atmosphere like, filling up a bathtub it's not like that if we admit it uh, maybe more will get uh, sunk and uh the uh, anyway that last hundred and forty ppm might not be due to humans they do say that they've done some isotope ch- uh, testing and somehow using isotopes they pinned it on humans but uh, that may or may not may or may not be true I'm not sure
0: okay um uh, yeah I think I think that's fascinating but I think you know here um uh, you know, the, the, the onus of proof is not on the, uh, is not on the people who, uh, are like you and me think there is no crisis. I think this is just another, uh, it, it's adding more burden of proof on the people who think that there is a crisis. Because not only do you need to convince me that, you know, the weather is uh, irredeemably broken in a in a way that has never happened, but you also need to convince me that that is because of increasing CO2 and that the increasing CO2 is the fault of human beings. And I think, you know, if you just step out of the idea that credentials are what determines truth and you're trying to think of this in a scientific way, you know, scientific as in, Scientific method, not scientific, as in people who get called scientists because governments um, uh, pay them research grants to call themselves scientists. Then I think the burden of proof is extremely, extremely uh, difficult to determine. So um, it's, and again, you know, when you throw in the on the opposite side, we're being asked to basically sacrifice the things that make modern civilization possible. It's it's very difficult to make the um, you know the, the the climate crisis case. I think. Um, all right, so that moves us then to number five, which is that climate science is basic physics. Is climate science basic physics or not?
1: No, that, that's one of the craziest claims. I hear that all the time that it's basic physics, and again, they're assuming that if you just uh, add a certain amount of carbon dioxide to the air, you're going to be able to calculate the global average temperature. But anyway, as we've discussed already, there's so many different factors. And the idea that you can just use basic physics to figure that out is ridiculous. And why are we even funding climate science if it's basic physics? I've heard some say that the science has been, uh, the basic science of global warming has been settled since the 1800s, but um, it it hasn't. Of course, like we were talking about, there's all these things going on with clouds and all the other uh, all the other factors. Um, So it it clearly is not basic physics. It's it's clearly tremendously complicated.
0: Yeah, and I think the fact that you can um, illustrate the greenhouse effect in a greenhouse, in a laboratory setting, is one thing. But extrapolating from that to a giant ball that is 12,000 kilometers in diameter is a completely different thing. I mean, it's just the idea that you could reduce the entirety of the Earth's climate to the effect that you see in a tiny little... um, in a tiny little uh, lab setting is just uh, unbelievably reductionist in a way that I don't think survives uh, any kind of scientific critical scrutiny.
1: And of course, even in a real greenhouse or in in a hot car, it's not the actual, it's not CO2 that's causing it to heat up. It's it's the glass and uh, uh, it's... it's the glass heating up It is not uh, CO2. There's been people who try to uh, change CO2 levels in cl- inside a closed container. I think Anthony Watts has done some of these experiments. And uh, you can put more CO2 in there or less CO2, and, and you actually don't see a difference in temperature because of the CO2 inside of a closed container. So I have not seen any lab experiment where they can actually prove exactly. Uh, I do believe that the CO2 does trap some heat, but I haven't seen it proved in a lab. In a lab experiment.
0: Oh, interesting! Yeah. I did not know that.
1: Yeah,
0: it's just uh, yeah. <laughs> it keeps getting flimsier and flimsier. It does.
1: The more you look into it,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: I should mention at this point that when I first heard this stuff, I believed it. And lots of skeptics that I know started out believing it. They just thought, okay, scientists must know what they're doing. They must be correct. But it's very, very common that you believe it for a while. And then something makes you check into it for yourself. And then you become uh, become very surprised that the evidence does not hold up at all. If you look at it uh, on your own for just a day, you can find out lots of different holes.
0: Yeah, I think it's um uh, it, it's one of my uh it's one of the funny things I find about this uh, entire debate and not just this debate but I think you know generally the kind of people who think we're in a climate crisis also think that you know um all of these insane government mandates on um to fight a virus were a good idea and it's just it's it's it's, it's complete lack of critical thinking and uh, delegation to authority. And what I find amazing about it is that um If you try and have a discussion with some of these people that are uh, convinced that we're in a climate crisis, it's extremely rare that they would even have an idea, that they would even consider the possibility that you've actually understood what they're talking about. this is, you know, the the, the the only image they have in their mind, the only idea is that you're simply ignorant because you haven't heard of the science. And this is, this is always when you're dealing with any of these kind of midwits, they talk to you as if you're a 10 year old and you know that you need things explained to you as a 10 year old. No, here's what you don't understand. Here's what the scientists say. The climate is changing because of, um, you know, the greenhouse effect, and they they just they cannot conceive of the idea that you actually understand those things, that you've read about those things, that you've studied them more than they have studied those things, and you've come to disagree. For them, the only possible reason why you disagree with their TV and newspaper is because you're ignorant. That's it. Like there's no ability to conceive of your opponent's viewpoint. There aren't, I've not come across anybody who will, you know, the, the people that are really fanatic about this, they can't explain what it is that skeptics think. They can't tell you why you don't believe it. Like, if, you know, you, you, what, what they call this, um, I forget the name for it, you know, being able to summarize uh, your opponent's viewpoint. They cannot do that. You can't, uh, I think it's called passing the, uh, what is it, the Turing test? No, not the Turing test. Something else, I forget. So
1: people call that steel manning. Steel manning, I've heard it called? Yes. Place. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. They could never provide a steel man. And that's, they could never tell you, you know, why, all right, so... They've heard that I, you know, that somebody will hear that I say something that is, you know, against the um, high priests of climate orthodoxy. And the only reaction I get is, oh my God, I can't believe this guy is such an idiot. He doesn't even know and doesn't believe in the science. And it's impossible for one of them to say, all right, I, this is what you think. You know, here's your position. You think you know, the things that you and I have discussed right now, like, yeah, you think the weather is changing, but that it's not a catastrophe. And you don't think that CO2 is the control knob. And here's why you're wrong. They're incapable of providing that kind of summary. All that they can do is just, oh, my God, I can't believe you don't believe the science. I can't believe you won't, you you, you don't trust the scientific evidence. And it's just, you know, if only... More people would mock you and laugh at you and force you to read more New York Times explainers and more NPR, uh, you know, uh, how to comm- how to talk to your uh, climate skeptic friends. Uh, if only you would read more of these, you know, then you would become informed. And of course, the amazing thing is that the vast majority of those people um, don't read any science. What they consider science is basically NPR and New York Times explainers and uh, CNN uh, <laughs> uh, segments. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think a lot of them think that their job is done if they can convince you that the climate is changing, like they think skeptics don't believe the climate is changing, or if they can uh, get you to admit that CO2 is a greenhouse gas, which it is, uh, then they think they may have won the debate, or uh, all experts believe in it. I guess that's coming up next. Yeah, that's (laughs) number six. Then it must be true if the experts believe it. Uh, But yeah, they've just, uh, as you mentioned, they just have never taken the time to actually look at anything for themselves or... Yeah, the knowledge is a very, very thin.
0: Yeah, so this is, this is a, of course, a very common one you always get, which is 97% of all climate scientists agree. And so who the hell are you to disagree with them? So do all the experts agree?
1: Uh, they do not. I mean, the whole question is, do they agree on what? Uh, they probably all do agree that, they do agree that Earth is warm since 1975 and 1850. I've never heard anybody say that it hasn't. And I've never heard any experts say that CO2 is not a a greenhouse gas. I've never heard any experts say the climate isn't changing. But that's about as far as it goes. And what a lot of people think the consensus is that we are currently experiencing a climate crisis. And, of course, the weather is getting worse and all these other things. They think the consensus extends way further than it really does. And that somewhere here I should probably bring it up is what the IPCC says about uh, storms, et cetera. This one. I like this one a lot. This is the IPCC from 2012. So oftentimes I'm dealing with people on Twitter and they're trying to tell me that the IPCC says that cyclones are getting worse. So at the top here, you can see the IPCC says there's low confidence in in what is happening with tropical cyclones. And further down, they're talking about droughts. And basically they say droughts have gotten worse in some places and they've gotten less severe in other places. You get down to the bottom, what does the IPCC say? What do they say about floods? And uh, overall low confidence at the global scale regarding even the sign of the changes of floods. So this whole time over and over we're hearing, of course CO2 causes worse floods and all all scientists agree, but you look and see what the IPC says, and they absolutely don't say that. They say we don't even know what the sign. Maybe floods are getting worse or better or we don't know. So um, bottom line is uh, the consensus does not uh, say what uh, a lot of uh, a lot of warmish people think it says.
0: Yeah, and and um, you know the, that ninety seven percent of climate scientists agree um, claim uh, is <laughs> dodgy as hell. Um, I, I, what was it based on? Do you are you familiar with the study on which it was based?
1: Yeah, I think it turned out there was a big survey sent out and to I don't know if it was thousands of people. They got it down for some reason to seventy five out of seventy seven had agreed. I think that was the ninety seven percent, but. I can't remember what the premise was. It for sure wasn't, do you you all believe that there is a uh, climate crisis right now? And I would like to see all climate scientists in the world, I'd like to see a poll saying, and uh, they would have to reply and uh, provide their name or sign their name to a statement saying, it's 2022, and I believe that there's a global climate crisis right now. I think very few climate scientists would be willing to sign their name to that where they would... uh, that have to be thrown back in their face uh, years from now, because for sure there is no climate crisis. And again, um, the number of people who are living as if they believe that, that's a big deal too. Uh, Almost nobody is living as if they believe that CO2 threatens to kill our children. Uh, Even people who are on TV all the time trying to scare us about this, they are living fossil fuel lifestyles. And uh, if they actually believe that it threatened to kill their children, they would have to model that and and not uh, be flying flying, uh, flying off for vacation, et cetera. So they just can't be bothered to behave as if they believe what they're saying. I think it's an important point. Yeah.
0: This, this is another one of my favorite uh, uh, things about this uh, whole hysteria is, um you know, whenever I speak about this, there's one particular uh, podcaster in the Bitcoin space who shall go nameless, who is um, very good at regurgitating, you know, uh, approved narratives. And um, he's always, you know, feigning outrage at the fact that how could this guy say that there is no climate crisis and he owns a sports car that does not run on wind or solar and uh well even if it did run on wind or solar you can't make wind or solar uh power without extensive use of fossil fuels and ex extremely high carbon emissions and he conducts all of his interviews he tr- he flies out to conduct all of his interviews rather than do zoom which you know consumes and emits an enormous amount of co2 and of course i have no problem with him doing the, all of those things but I find it astonishing and hilarious that these people will tell you this is a crisis and they'll harangue you, you know, the the, 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 the this kind of hysterical, shrewd, um, you know, how dare you say this? It's a crisis. You know, he has no problem with um, really degrading and humiliating himself by haranguing strangers on the internet for not behaving like this is a crisis. But then he goes and gets into airplanes uh, to do things that can be done over zoom uh, gets into a sports car when he could just get on a bus and <laughs> emits an enormous amount of co2 and it's just like if if you really think this is actually causing a crisis you wouldn't be doing this like if you know if you really believed this is a crisis if you really believe this is going to I don't know whatever your claims are, whatever you've been programmed to believe recently, um, you know, cause sea levels to rise or boil the oceans or, you know, boil rising oceans or whatever it is, going to destroy the climate for your children. It's going to make earth unlivable for your children. You'd think twice about emitting all of those CO2 emissions, but... You don't see that. You don't see these people thinking in that way. They just, uh, and it's it's it, it, it's it's unbelievably funny for me how you know it's not about it's it's not something that will ever affect their own life and the way that they want to do it. It's just something with which they harangue others, and it's it's the same thing with the coronavirus. You know, you see it with all of these, some of the you know all of the politicians that were the most. Um, fanatic about enforcing mass mandates and making children wear masks and enforcing all kinds of insane stuff about lockdowns they were all well not all but i mean an enormously high number of them were caught um um you know flaunting their own rules like the british prime minister was throwing parties every couple of days um, when the entire country was in lockdown, um, the California governor had a very high-profile series of things, and it's 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 amazing, and, and it just shows that this entire thing is just a uh, it's it's just a stupid moral panic, <laughs> really. It's 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 no different from burning witches. It's just you know um, dim-witted people get manipulated into getting angry. And this is where, you know, uh, one of the other counters is, well, how do you explain all these scientists? Well, I don't have to explain why people believe ridiculous things. All throughout human history, people have believed all kinds of ridiculous things. It's not my responsibility to get inside the mind of ridiculous people who believe ridiculous hysterical things and provide you with a full accounting of why each one of them came to believe all of those things. Um, you know people burned witches before uh, people have done all kinds of insane things they used to sacrifice children in order to make the crops work um these are the, these are the same human beings that uh you know the, their own genetic material is passed on today to the people that are deciding to uh, mask 2 year olds and then believe 2 year olds need to stay in masks even as their political leaders themselves are not masking it's not up to me to justify it. The fact that they're choosing to do insane things <laughs> is, is not an argument in favor of those insane things. Um, and also, you know, going back to the issue of the experts, a lot of these studies that look at it, what they do is they look at all the studies that are published with climate change in them and they see if that study is actively going out there and denying climate change. And then, if not, you know, even if it's just a tiny little uh, footnote that in which it mentions climate change, the fact that it's not denying it, then they'll say, "You, oh, oh yeah, you've got you've got this uh, right here. You've got the data. So tell us about this."
1: Yeah, here's uh, just where my cursor is. Here they have uh, close to twelve thousand climate papers, uh, and only zero point three percent of them actually found fifty percent of the warming since uh, six. 50% of the post-1950 warming was caused by humans. But a thing I like to mention here is that uh, lately, or in recent years, if you're uh, doing butterfly research and you want to get funding, uh, you can get more funding if you mention I'm uh, doing little, working on the effects of climate change on butterflies. That will get you funding. So enormous amounts of papers have been written that mention climate change, but they just mentioned it. And certainly... Uh, this butterfly researcher in the example is not actually looking at all the factors and trying to figure out how the earth's climate works. Most, almost all these papers, they just mention climate change. And it's by people who don't, uh, they're, they're not trying to figure out uh, the human influence. They're just trying to figure out uh, if warming happens, what will happen to my uh, research subject. So.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. And if you want to get published, you want to uh, tie in climate change. there's an amazing, uh, Web page which I also cite in my book, The Fiat Standard, which says um, the title of the page is Everything is Caused by Climate Change. And it collects press articles that link all kinds of things to climate change. And it's because, you know, some study, again, somebody was studying the population of um, butterflies in the Himalayas. And in order to get a research grant to go hang out in the Himalayas for a couple of months, they said a couple of sentences on, you know, studying the impact of climate change. And that then is presented as a scientific paper that confirms that climate change is happening and also presented as an impact. You know, if you are if you're a denier, then you want the butterflies of the Himalayas to go extinct. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yep. Okay, so these are the big six uh, myths. I think this is this has been perfect, and I, you know, I, I look forward to seeing um, people try and poke holes in these. Um, now, after that, we get to the IPCC. I wanted to ask you what do you think of the IPCC. I mean, these are, you know, uh, it's a government agency, so clearly they would never uh, have any kind of conflict of interest, or they would never uh, make dubious claims. It's an international organization; it's part of the United Nations. How dare you, as our glorious reader, uh, leader Greta Thunberg says, how dare you uh, question them?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's presented as uh, the gold standard or whatever, but it's the intergovernmental panel on climate change. So they, when they are uh, producing the summary for policymakers, they get in a room, in a closed door room, and they negotiate it, which is really an odd way to do science. Um, that you're in a closed door room and then you, you don't really negotiate what the scientific truth is, but that's what they do. They go through line by line, some uh, government employees, and, and then what's supposed to come out of that process is scientific truth after they negotiate it. But I think that's a total farce. So um, there are a lot of good people, I'm sure, that work for the IPCC, but I uh, don't. Uh, it's, it's not truth with a capital T. It's just a bunch of people that are saying some stuff, and some of it's true and some of it isn't.
0: Yeah, it's um, and and I think there's a, there's an enormous difference between um, you know what the scientists say in these and then what gets uh, put in the executive summary and then what gets reported in the press. Yeah, and uh, a lot of scientists have had a lot of misgivings about their work being misrepresented in this uh, stuff.
1: So it is like a a game of telephone, the kid's game telephone, where you have real scientists writing papers. And then there's a level where they write the summary for policymakers, which may contradict possibly what's in the basic level or the lower level. And then uh, just recently when they came out with one of their reports, I think it was the uh, UN chief said it's a code red for humanity. So that was presented as an IPCC conclusion. And it's just something that uh, a guy, which uh, I I think it was Antonio... I forget it was the head of the head of the UN. But anyway, none of the scientists said code red as far as I know, but since he said code red, that's what got in the headlines. And that was just uh, again uh, not a scientific claim at all. It's just something that somebody said totally not true as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. Um And, um, all right. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about is the hockey stick. This became pretty famous. Um, and I think, you know, when I think the, the moment that, um, the climate crisis narrative, uh, triumphed was probably around, um, the mid 2000s, somewhere around 2004, 2005, 2006. That's when, uh, That's when basically you became a pariah for questioning any of this stuff. And that's when I think, you know, that's when George Bush was running for re-election and then he basically bought into this, even though I think, I may be inaccurate here, but I think when he ran for elections first time, this was not a big deal. And then uh, when he ran for re-election, it was a big, uh, he he wasn't much uh, of a believer, but then when he ran for re-election, he basically switched into it. And I think that was the point where, um if you wanted to be taken seriously if you didn't want to get pointed at and laughed at you had to um, admit that it was real and that happened largely i think or a big part of it was because of the al gore movie that came out uh, around that time which was an inconvenient truth and a big part of that movie like the big main takeaway of that movie was when al gore got into that elevator um, you know, he was walking around showing you the temperatures and then he to show how the temperatures have risen recently, he got into an elevator that took him up and showed how the elev- uh, temperatures were rising. So the whole thing was, um, you know, very, uh, de- very dramatic. And that's really, I think, when also it it was when the climate narrative had a very coherent um single story and i should add you know i i i used to be a believer like i i studied this stuff at a graduate level i have a phd on this stuff and i uh, i was a believer and this was pretty convincing at that point like you know um uh, we've had witnessed an enormous amount of increase in the temperatures as soon as um right, you know pretty coincidental with the beginning of industrialization. So as soon as we start uh, pumping these fuels out of the earth, we start putting out carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We witnessed temperatures rising massively in a way that was unprecedented. And it's, I mean, it's very difficult to argue that this was a coincidence, but then um, things happened that showed that that data had a lot of problems with it. So what happened with this hockey stick?
1: Yeah, Steve McIntyre is the one that really investigated the hockey stick and how they try to use proxies uh, to figure out what the global average temperature had done. But the the whole idea, I think, is pretty farcical to try to use tree rings to figure out what the global average temperature was, because there's so many uh, things that influence the width of tree rings, like amount of rain, or there was even... uh, like a uh, sheep may have uh, defecated near the tree, and that could make a big difference. If there's additional fertilization there, that uh, that could make you think that uh, that was an extra warm year, et cetera. But uh, I put up the uh, slide here just showing um, the uh, way the temperatures have varied over the last few thousand years. And the hockey stick kind of threw away all of these uh, warm periods, et cetera. And it's just supposed to be replaced by kind of a flat line that they uh, – It was a flat line and then humans started burning fossil fuels and then you got the blade of the hockey stick going kind of straight up. But it kind of wrecks the whole uh, narrative if you look at all the different warm periods that occurred just in the last few thousand years when CO2 was supposed to be stable and we weren't burning fossil fuels. So why did we get all of these uh, fluctuations? You can see that some of these rises of temperature, if this graph is correct, uh, thousands of years ago from the European dark age, to the medieval warm period, there's quite a ri- rise there. That's kind of like the rise that we just saw um, after the little ice age. So th- the hockey stick in my mind is completely bogus and discredited. And there's been tons of papers that have come up with um, temperature reconstructions that don't look anything like uh, Michael Mann's hockey stick. So uh, not correct. It got, I think it got a lot of uh, attention because uh, it uh, fits fit the narrative and it could be used but uh, it's not correct. It's not scientifically correct.
0: Yeah, and I think the, um, the, the, the other thing that happened was that um, uh, as it became very clear that this data wasn't very good, you know, we witnessed the pivot in uh, the messaging from uh, global warming to climate change. So it used to be that it was a coherent narrative that, you know, CO2 rises, temperatures rise, and then the earth boils and burns, and we all die and uh, and it gets horrific. But then it became, first of all, we didn't witness the warming that they were predicting. And it became clear that, uh, you know, the, the data, the idea that this was so unprecedented wasn't really there. And so they pivoted the marketing from warming to change. And now, you know, once you move to change, that's that's when we get into real proper uh, witch doctor territory because everything is changing in the climate at all times. You know, we're talking about a giant ball that is spinning <laughs> in the earth, that is uh, spinning in, the, in, in space at a speed of 30 kilometers per second around an even far bigger giant ball of fire And um, you know nothing is going to be constant. We've got everything changes every day, and over the um, over the seasons and over the years, everything is constantly changing. And so, of course, our observed experience of temperature and weather and rainfall is going to constantly be changing. And any change that happens can be construed as evidence for this. Interestingly enough, of course, uh, there's been quite a little bit of shenanigans uh, involved in the construction of the hockey stick. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I know Stephen McIntyre has done a lot of work on this. I've been trying to get him on the podcast and he promised he would uh, join us uh, in a few months. Um, His work was very influential in me uh, breaking out of this. uh, Well, you know, I I, I was doing my PhD in this stuff when I came across his blog, and it's extremely challenging.
1: Yeah, super interesting. He is a very smart guy. I love to read his work. And he found out that I believe if you take Man's algorithm, and you put red noise through it—just random red noise—a hockey stick pops out from his algorithm. And uh, I believe also that there was some certain bristlecone pine tree that showed um, that showed the hockey stick that man wanted, and that was weighted something like hundreds of times more than some other than some other proxies. So um, it's basically look around until you find something that gives the answer you want and uh, just use that and throw out the other data. There was a lot of that type of thing. And there was also the hide the decline thing where the data did not show uh, the tree ring data. didn't show what the temperature, uh, uh, temperature showed from, I think 1960s, I forget when it was, but there was a big divergent between uh, what temperature showed in the tree ring. So they just threw that out and, uh, they, uh, they, hide hid, they hid the decline shown by the tree ring data because, uh, it- if uh, trees are not thermometers uh, after 1960, how do we know they were ever thermometers? And the answer to me is they were never thermometers. They were just. Uh, yeah. None of that data makes any sense to me.
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, you know Stephen McIntyre is um, uh, is an independent researcher. He's also not part of the. Uh, he's not part of the accredited, approved uh, priests of climate, so he shouldn't be. Uh, he, you know, he shouldn't be talking about this. And of course, you know the interesting thing is, of course, he's uh, he spent years trying to look into the raw data for this, and people were stonewalling him and just refusing to give him the access to the data. And then one day, uh, somebody hacked into some servers, and they managed to liberate that data. And this is this is, I think, of course, another one of the major blind spots that people think, well, there's a real scientific process taking place. No, it's almost all of it is or well, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it, particularly the most influential stuff is done with proprietary data that you can't verify. You can read the science, which is you know the paper that gets published in a journal with the conclusions, but you can't look at the raw data. And if you try and look at the raw data, you know, the the scientists will just tell you, no, you can't do it. You have to be part of the guild. You have to be publishing. Um, Basically, you have to have your livelihood dependent on reaching the correct conclusion in order to access the data. And so that's really how they prevent real scrutiny. But Steve McIntyre has done an incredible job uh, doing that scrutiny. And after years of being uh, turned down and being refused access to that data, uh, some enterprising <laughs> uh, hackers uh, liberated that data, along with a trove of emails uh, of some of those scientists involved, particularly to the, um, particularly associated with uh, the East Anglia University, and uh, that showed uh, pretty blatant evidence of transparent data manipulation in order to arrive at the desired results, right?
1: Yeah, I spent uh, many hundreds of hours reading those uh, emails. It was super interesting to me. I blogged about it hundreds of times. I blogged about it. And uh, it was very interesting to see what the scientists were saying to each other when they, when they thought nobody else would to be able to uh, – these are private conversations. So what they were saying privately was very different from what they were saying publicly. I think there was one email in there where uh, a guy said that – a local kid did a uh, project about tree rings that kind of eval- uh, invalidated the entire tree ring idea. He used some tree rings from a local woods, and it kind of invalidated the uh, the idea that you can use tree rings to figure out glow- figure out temperatures, which, which you really can't. But there was all sorts of very interesting stuff in there, and uh, I'm very glad that we have access to those. So um, I still have a lot of those. If anybody wants to take a look at my blog, I have tons of posts on that. It's uh, a lot of good stuff is in there. A lamenting cold weather, and we can't figure out why it's so cold. That type of thing. Very interesting. I don't know if you've read some yourself. Maybe. Um, yeah,
0: I've uh, I, I've looked into this over the years. I'd urge I'd urge the reader and listener to uh, look into this stuff firsthand. I think um, the if you're not getting paid to arrive at these conclusions, the more you research, the more you head in the direction of yeah, there's no crisis and we should stop freaking out about this. I think in general, people should just stop freaking out about <laughs> things and start being a lot more reasonable about them. Um, all right, well, this has been uh, Uh, This has been great. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Now I want to open this up for questions from the seminar attendees. Anybody here have any questions for Tom? Um, I could ask a question. Um, So so I just wanted to ask a question about the uh, global temperature records related to the first uh, chart you showed on Greenland average temperatures. Yeah. Um, There's quite a lot of contention around that particular graph because people say that... um, People have tried to debunk it by saying that this is only a local uh, temperature change and that it was taken on the surface of Greenland rather than um, like showing a cross section of of different temperatures. And um, I just wondered how you respond to claims that this is only a regional change and that actually, in reality, the um, the the average global temperature um, was was much lower.
1: Yeah, I would say that if CO2 is a climate control knob, it should have been able to heat Greenland over a thousand year period. It would be odd if Greenland went one way and the rest of the world went the other way over six, maybe seven thousand years or more. Um, I have not seen a graph showing global average temperatures going the other way in lockstep with uh, carbon dioxide over that same period. So I think uh, pretty much any temperature proxy is going to show you uh, if it was correct, it would show you something locally. And, uh, but yeah, I have seen a lot of that, uh, particularly about whether the medieval warm period was global. That seems to be one of the biggest questions, but there is a great website I would direct people to called the, uh, I think it's called the medieval warm period project where they spent enormous amounts of time looking at all sorts of uh, data to find out was the medieval warm period just a local thing or was it a global thing? And, uh. There's tons of studies that indicate they've looked at all sorts of local areas and it seems like it occurred in, in most local areas. And um, it looks like it was about as warm as it is now. Uh, so the hockey stick would have you believe that the medieval warm period was colder than now. And, and uh, I see no evidence that it was colder than now. Okay, thank you. Yeah.
0: Uh, Kiki, you want to ask your question?
1: Sure, thank you, Saif. Yeah, I have a question, Tom,
0: and thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you find is the best way to begin this conversation with climate, typical climate people, especially around Bitcoin mining, if you know anything about that or just how the best way in uh, to talk with people who might be new to this information?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the Bitcoin mining part, but uh, for me, I like to just uh, divide it up into parts. I really like to just look at one piece of it at a time. So I like to debunk one piece, like if they start talking about how a hurricane just happened and that must prove that there's a crisis, then I just dive down right into that. I don't know if that helps any, but that's just the way my mind works is I like to look at small pieces at a time and debunk the claims one at a time. But um, I don't know if you're interested in any, uh, any books you could read to get started on this. Those are at the end, I wanted to throw that up here anyway.
0: We'll put these up in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So if you're uh, starting kind of at, from zero and not uh, just starting to get into the topic, that very first one at the top, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change by Mark Morano, just got a ton of great information in it. So I would start with that one. And then uh, lower down, uh, there's a couple of great websites. Uh, WhatsApp with that and Climate Depot are good. And then uh, follow me on Twitter if you want to see uh, me uh, try to debunk things uh, one at a time on Twitter. And actually, at the very bottom, I've got uh, notes for climate skeptics. I would direct you there, too, uh, to just uh, look at data on polar bears, hurricanes, and all sorts of things. This is kind of one big post that takes on lots of topics that in in one shot there. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, um, if anybody has more questions, please uh, do raise your hand. But I did want to move on to a topic which I don't see you usually discuss, Tom, uh, which is uh, the kind of uh, – um, bigger picture politics that drive this um, hysteria around the weather and climate. Um, what are your thoughts about what is driving this? And I know initially we discussed this and we said, you know, it's it's not our job to have to explain why people believe ridiculous things in order to prove that they're ridiculous. Um, and I know you focus on just, you know, asking people why. And as you said, you know, focusing on the small details which i think is extremely effective but what do you see as the kind of bigger driver for why uh, people end up believing these these kinds of absurd things
1: yeah so that's good i don't know what's going on at the very top level what's driving people but i think within the, the climate debate here i think most people that i'm dealing with sincerely believe that there is a climate crisis and it's not like or climate scientists i think a lot of them sort of believe in it in that um uh, it's not that they secretly know there's no crisis and they get up every day thinking, I'm going to start lying to people again today to try to make money. I, I think there's so much groupthink. I think that is the key of uh, the key in the going on in most of their brains is that they think somebody else has already proven it. They're on, this, they're on the right side. And then they can think of them themselves as uh, their heroes. They're fighting against the bad guys and they're doing something that might help save humanity. I think that's a strong driver that they're doing stuff. That makes them feel heroic, and if they were to find out that c o two isn 't the climate control knob, then they would have to look back at all the years of work they did on this and realize that uh, that they were in the wrong scientifically that 's just too painful but uh, I see a lot more groupthink and i, I don 't really see conspiracy as much
0: yeah I, I I tend to agree with you, and I think there's the other the uh, the other aspect of it, which is you know my uh, my hobby horse um is the monetary um, aspect that drives this i think it's just um the 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 reality is uh, you know the science the way that uh, fiat money motivates science and i discussed this in detail in the fiat standard the way that uh, The way that science funding happens in a free society, ideally, what would happen is, you know, anybody's free to write whatever they want and publish whatever they want. And then if your ideas end up being productive in that they help people have a better way of living They help people um, be more productive. Then you find a way of uh, monetizing that. Your ideas spread, you get more funding, your university gets more funding. And so we'd have a free open marketplace of ideas, which is, you know, um, it's not just a marketplace of ideas. It's also a a monetary marketplace where good ideas thrive and bad ideas die away. And so um, what happens when we have money that is... um, controlled by the government is that it allows the government to take over the process of the marketplace of ideas. And instead of having my ideas out there in free competition with one another, we have ideas being, you know, winners and losers in in the marketplace of ideas being determined top down by fiat, by government fiat, um, literally by fiat uh, and um, financially by Fiat money. So the government can print all the money that it wants. And so they can finance people and they decide the agendas. And so I think this is a perfect recipe for groupthink. This is a perfect recipe for going down blind alleys and not having any kind of corrective to wake you up and tell you, hey, you're going down a blind alley, turn around, go back um, to a better uh, place. Because we don't have this open marketplace of ideas, what ends up happening is that you could continue to go down this blind alley and um, you know the people who assign the funding are the same people who carry out the research. And so you just end up with more and more funding going toward the same kind of groupthink. And the only way to get funded is to submit to the tenets of the groupthink. And the only way to... Um, and And so... That's just a a self-reinforcing cycle that keeps taking you deeper down the blind alleys. Now, um, I think, you know, we could get innocent um, wrong blind alleys there. But then what I argue in the fiat standard is that there's an agenda that is far more conducive um, to the financing, to the government that pays the bills. You know, whoever pays the piper calls the tunes. And you're far more likely to end up getting lost in blind alleys that serve a certain purpose. And so whether it is in nutrition science, and it's something that we discuss uh, frequently here, Um, In nutrition science, we see that, you know, the modern scientific method is constantly telling people to stay away from meat and to replace it with cheap industrial waste, essentially, Um, instead of having animal fats, you should try the cheap industrial fats that are produced in horrific uh, forms, seed oils, and uh, these things are cheaper and these things help to hide inflation and so the dietary guidelines came out in the 1970s and they told people that they should be eating six to 11 portions of grains a day and that they should cut down on meat and that they should get some of their protein from as much as possible from their protein they should get it from plant sources and they should get fat from unsaturated fat because that's better so you end up buying the industrial fat I don't think that that is just an entire coincidence. I mean, it's obviously a broken pseudoscience, but it's not a coincidence because the price of meat was going up a lot. And so it's very, very um, politically inconvenient for anybody in power to witness the price of meat rising. And people being reliant on meat. So if you tell people to substitute, take out the meat and eat beans and lentils, as we're seeing, you know, um, when you see the central bank's been tweeting this, the US Federal Reserve has been telling people, hey, replace your, tor- your, replace your turkey with tofu this year. And uh, it, it contains more nutrients and more proteins per dollar. And of course that's nonsense because it's it's, it's infinitely it's inferior and it's creates all kinds of problems. But the, why does the Federal Reserve <laughs> want to become Jamie Oliver? Why is it part of their mandate to tell people what to cook and how to eat? Well, the reason is they're trying to tell people to eat the cheap things because the more you buy cheap things, the less you, the price of your basket of goods goes up, the less you feel the inflation. And I think something similar is at work with the climate uh, hysteria. I think um, if you come up with conclusions that tell people uh, you should not be consuming oil, you're far more likely to get funded than somebody who says, you know, oil is actually very good for civilization. This is this is an absolutely incontrovertible statement. Um, we can't have all the nice things that we have if it wasn't for oil, for oil, gas, and coal. And yet you don't have anybody in the mainstream of academia making this point. You don't have anybody at Harvard or any of the major universities in the US making this point. You don't have any major energy um, scholars that are out there making the case for we need more fossil fuels. You know, the one person that I know of who's making that case is an independent person, um, uh, Alex Epstein. You know, he's out there actually bravely putting his name out saying this is the moral case for fossil fuels. He does not get uh, university funding. The university funding goes to people being hysterical about how fossil fuels are going to burn the oceans and boil uh, earth and whatever and I don't think that that's an entire that's entirely coincidental. It's very difficult to argue that this is coincidental. And this isn't to say that there's some giant conspiracy that's out there. It's just this is the political agenda that is likely to get you funded. If you go out and you tell people you need to spend, uh, you need to be buying more oil and more uh, more of these um, energy sources that are very price sensitive. You're going to have a hard time getting funded. Whereas, if you find the reason why actually those energy sources are bad, you're going to have an easier time getting funded. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I was going to bring up actually uh, the uh, like carbon credit markets in, in themselves, that uh, billions and billions of dollars are on the line there. And of course, if CO2 isn't the climate control knob, then I'll all of that money goes to, to zero, the carbon credits re- would be worth nothing. And also green energy in general, there's a lot of money to be made there and people are gonna be a lot less likely to uh, to want to force governments to buy uh, solar panels and wind turbines, et cetera, if uh, we find out they actually don't prevent bad weather. So anyway, enormous amounts of money is on the line as well as uh, the other things we talked about. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you entirely on that. And this is why I think this is such an important point, because the the birth of the anti-fossil fuels science, or pseudoscience, if you want, came in the 1970s. Initially, it was overpopulation and overconsumption. We were going to run out of all of those fuels, and because the prices were rising, and so the way that they explained this was they put in all kinds of... Um, no, it's pseudoscience about earth is running out, earth is running out, and that's why the price is rising. You know, clearly it has nothing to do with going off gold and all of the money printing that's going taking place. It's just, you know, we've hit the geological limits of earth, we've tapped earth dry of oil. But here we are 50 years later, and we are producing far more oil than ever, and we just continue to produce more and more and more every year. So clearly, we're not running out, we're not tapping the earth dry so what are so they the, you know the conclusion has remained the same and this is why you know this is just basically motivated reasoning it's not real science the conclusion has remained the same we should stop consuming oil oil is bad but the rationale has completely shifted it's not that we have not enough oil it's that we have so much Too much we're burning the earth with it so the same people that were um concerned about running out of oil in the 1970s are now concerned about having too much oil but the conclusion is the same we need to move away from oil and um the same thing happened with um food in the 1970s we needed to move away because of you know heart disease and so on has been extremely catastrophic and has ruined so many millions and billions of lives really all over the world Well, now inflation is back, and I think we're likely going to see more and more inflation over the coming years. And so we're witnessing those narratives really pick up. We're seeing, um, you know, everyday um, regime media, you know, um, what I call, you know, the fiat media, the people, the media that basically is financed by people who benefit from the inflation is out there telling the peasants that (laughs) consume less oil, get on a bus, don't drive your own car, live in a smaller house, um, stay home, watch TV, um, get a VR set, don't go out, don't drive and uh, eat lentils and don't eat beef, eat soy, uh, eat all of these uh, cheap industrial crops and don't eat meat. And I think this is, this is why I find this extremely important and fascinating and extremely relevant to monetary issues because it's, it That's really what's driving the scientific method uh, in this regard. It's, there isn't a consensus that's born out of evidence that, oh, really, we've looked at it and it's pretty undeniable that an increase in CO2 is actually causing the Earth to um, have incredibly bad things happen to it. It's different, um, it, it's it's a, it's a set conclusion of, we need to get people, we need to find ways to convince people to stay away from the things whose prices are rising. And then we need to find a rationale for it.
1: I agree. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. This has been absolutely fascinating. I think this is going to be my go-to uh, reference to send to people about why I am one of the heretics. Um I hope, you know, thank I want to thank you again for all of the work you've done over the years, um helping me and many, many people all over the world. And I hope um more and more people start um speaking out about this because it's uh it's it's i think over the last 5 10 years or so it's uh, gone way beyond just being a cute uh, <laughs> a cute, you know little side hobby i think we're witnessing uh, the destruction of critical energy infrastructure that the world needs and um, more people that are that can see that this is ridiculous need to start speaking out about it i think
1: yeah i think jim Lakely said that uh, you may not care about the climate agenda but the climate agenda cares about you I think that's a good quote because it does yeah
0: yeah another great one is um you are the co2 they want to reduce yes yeah <laughs> i think this is really yeah you may not you may not care about it but they care about you they want to reduce you basically they, they want you to have fewer kids they want you to um, live uh, basically in a tiny little house, um, not have any mobility and not consume a lot of energy. They basically want you to go back to living like a medieval surf. And the reason for that is I think the ultimate reason is the inflation. The only way they can keep this inflation thing going is if you get people to consume less and if you get people to live shittier lives. And so we need to keep coming up with all these ridiculous narratives for why they need to do that. But we got to get you on Bitcoin, Tom. Uh, I forgot about yeah. that. We have to shill you on Bitcoin because Bitcoin fixes this. We always have to end almost every episode of the Bitcoin Standard podcast with explaining why Bitcoin fixes all of this.
1: I got your book on Audible, so I, I'm starting to listen to your book. Wonderful. Yeah.
0: Great. Yeah. And, and in a nutshell, Bitcoin can reinstate a free market in science because it's if Bitcoin basically takes away the government's money printer, because people are using real money that is hard to make that nobody can print then there's not gonna be a lot of people willing to pay out of their own pocket for uh, financing pseudoscience. And then uh, we'd have a real free marketplace of ideas. And then the other side of it is the fact that Bitcoin is really uh, liberating the energy market from the insanity of the last couple of decades where we've destroyed the energy sources that we need in favor of these primitive pre-industrial sources that are um essentially superfluous and unreliable and cannot be used and extremely expensive in real terms Bitcoin uh, mining is the freest market in the world for energy it'll buy energy from anybody anywhere in the world um, because you don't need to build infrastructure to transport the energy that is produced um, into any particular location where it is used so you can have remote generation of energy and um, it would be um, monetized through just a simple internet connection via satellite. And so I think it's going to revive the energy industry all over the world. And it's going to allow us um, around the world to have more and more cheap energy, which is the exact opposite of what we've been um, experiencing over the last few decades. So hopefully, one day, um, maybe next time we'll have you on, we'll talk about Bitcoin more. It
1: sounds great. I got to get up to speed on that. Excellent. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thanks to everybody else for attending and for all the questions. And I'll see you next time. Take care. All
1: right. Thank you very much.